Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. This week, we get to hear from Brent Bourgeois. Now, Brent was one half of the fairly successful kind of rock duo or rock group from the 80s called Bourgeois Tag. They really were known best for their one biggest hit, I Don't Mind At All, which is still beautiful. This is one of their other hits from their first album. It's called Mutual Surrender. This is one of my favorite songs of all time, although the album it comes from, I have some issues with, and we talk about that. They only ever put out two albums. The second one, Yo-Yo, was produced by Todd Rundgren. And there's some really fun Todd Rundgren stories in here. Now, my understanding of Brent's career was that he left it all, basically, to become a Christian artist. And he went into the Christian rock or Christian music vein. Now, he sets me straight on some of that. I think that that is a very bold move. I mean, you are basically declaring who you are and the audience that you are specifically targeting when you make a move like that. I want to dive into that. I've never really been able to ask anyone that kind of question before. Anyway, after a little while, that came to an end. He went on to produce some people, and these days, he is working for Facebook. Facebook has this really elaborate music department that they have put together for their multimedia ventures, like videos. And he's in there working on this. That's what gets him truly excited today. It's fascinating stuff. So we talk about all of this. We talk about the time he went on Johnny Carson. We talk about Julian Lennon. We talk obviously about Todd Rundgren. He finally put out a sort of a new solo album a couple of years ago called Don't Look Back, which is fantastic. It's one of my favorite albums of the last like five years or so. It is so good. Anyway, I get a lot of requests for Brent. This one has been a long time coming. I'll tell you more about that later. But anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. He's a really good man. He called me from his home in Sacramento. So I got to tell you, I have a long history with Bourgeois Tag. I'm saying it right, right? Bourgeois? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's your real name. The name I was christened with in New Orleans. New Orleans, there's three pages of Bourgeois in the phone book. Yeah. Uh, okay. At least when there was a phone book. Right. <laughs> I just want to establish that. I've always known that, but I was curious if casual fans may have always been always wondered if that was real. It is real. Well, yeah, especially when combined with tag, it, it sounded like a political name and European political name. And <laughs> people didn't know that it was our name. I believe that it was. Yeah. I didn't know until you went solo. I didn't, I, you know, I just thought it was an odd. I never said it right. And that that's going to tie into the story I'm about to tell you. So 1987, I'm staying over at my cousin Jim's house, and it's a then and now weekend on MTV, and they play Mutual Surrender, which is, to this day, one of my top favorite songs of all time. I love that song more mm. than anything. And um, then they play I Don't Mind. And I hadn't pieced together that you guys were the same band. I didn't even know who the bands were. I just heard the song on the radio, both of them, and liked them but never been proactive about it. So I'm just like, I can't believe this band that I, they did both these songs that I love. Cut to a week or two later, I take my allowance down to Raspberry Records in Sandy, Utah, where I live. And I ask the guy behind mm -hmm. the counter, I can only afford one cassette. Should I get the first Borges, as I would have said at the time, the first bourgeois tag or the second bourgeois tag? Yeah, I don't know, man. That's really, really up to you. And I hold them both in my hands for a minute. And I decide to go with Yo-Yo, even though my favorite song is on the first one. I just had this hunch. Yeah. Now I can tell you I feel like I made the right decision. And we can talk about that more later. <laughs> 
So cut to then another week or two later, and you guys are on Johnny Carson. That's right. This is a big deal. He doesn't have pop acts on his show very often. No, not at that time. No. And I'm sitting there and my dad says to me, see, why can't you like music like this? And I said, well, guess what I just bought the other day? I bought the tape with this song on it. And uh, so you were a very hot topic in my life for a couple of months there. And then uh, it kind of all disappeared. My understanding or the party line of Brent Bourgeois is that you guys come together, you put out this first album, it's okay, you get the second one with Todd Rundgren, All it starts to succeed, you have a hit on your hands, and drugs are just taking over your life, you can't perform or really do anything anymore to the same level, you become a Christian, you decide that rock and roll is, is the devil's work, and you decide to go solo and transfer all your energy into this Christian rock career. Now, that's the party line. I'm sure that's the easy version. Is any of that even true? Not really. Oh, really? (laughs) Good. (laughs) I mean, there is a grain of truth in all of it, and none of it's really that true. Um, At the end end of the second record, um, yeah, there there was a lot of drugs and alcohol around. It wasn't... It wasn't affecting our performance, my performance. It was affecting the rest of my life. And I had gotten busted for a DUI and I was having a a child that was on the way. And it just seemed like, you know, I wasn't going to be able to be the right father if I didn't get a handle on it all. And so I ended up going to get sober. A la my friend, Charlie Peacock, who had kind of preceded me into all of that. Really, the breakup of Bourgeois Tag had more to do with the kind of songs I was writing, which really weren't Christian songs at that time. They were more recovery kind of songs. They were more personal, kind of introspective, self-revealing, sort of self, you know, I, I was mm-hmm. pretty self-absorbed Got it. at the moment and not not really a great bandmate. And in the meantime, we were doing these demos with the Austrian producer Peter Wolf, who had just come off a whole string of hits. He was kind of the hot pop guy at the moment uh, with Wang Chung and Big Country and We Built This City and all that stuff. And it was exactly the kind of stuff I didn't want to do. Really? We were doing these demos with him and it was just rubbing me completely the wrong way. And the songs I was writing were not like that at all. And so I just felt like I had to leave because I wasn't fitting, you know, but it didn't really have anything to do with Christianity or okay. or that I couldn't perform or anything like that. Or I mean, in fact, I was sober then, you know. Okay. Um, okay. So let, I have a million follow-up questions on this. One, one is, did the, did the getting sober and the Christianity go hand in hand? Did they feed each other or were they separate tracks? Well, they fed each other, but they, they, they were not simultaneous. Oh. Uh. They were getting sober sort of led me in a spiritual way to kind of getting back to church and kind of following, uh, like I said, Charlie Peacock, who was going to this church and doing music. And it just, I don't know, it just kind of one thing led to another, but it was a kind of a slow process. It was not a burning bush. Well, so often, you know, when people go to AA, there's the 12 steps and they rely heavily on God or a higher power. And I wondered if you were really buying into that. Yeah, that's that's kind of where it started again. You know, I mean, I I, I was always, I was never, you know, atheist or anything. And um, unlike other people, I mean, I 
always had some kind of faith there, but it, okay. it got it gotten uh, sort of clouded. Sure. And so you know the the Christian thing really kind of came a little bit later. Okay. Sort of as a result. And I was always kind of a misfit of, of that it too. So yeah, I so I remember uh, when the first solo album came out, and you know, Dare to Fall in Love is a hit, and I liked it. I was a little because I'm really paying attention to you and the band at this time because I liked Yo Yo so much, and I remember thinking, boy, this is a little adult contemporary, you know, not not yeah. not terribly, but it's a little sleeker. that was that um i'd written all these other songs about you know that are on that record that are much different mm. they're much more introspective and those are the songs that i had written that i didn't feel were necessarily right for the band and i had written dare to fall in love as part of my writing for my publishing deal mm. writing for other people writing i had a bunch of songs like that too and i didn't want my record company to hear them Oh. Because I knew that, especially that one, because I knew that if they heard them, they would probably want me to put that out as you know, single. And so I kind of hid that from them, but somehow they found it. And of course, they thought it should be on the record. And of course, what happened was they put it out as a single. Yeah. Okay. Made a video and all that. So that's exactly what happened. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was working in a music land at the time in a mall. And um, that had just come out. So as you do, you play all the new albums, you know, everything in the store. And it never quite hooked me. I wanted it to hook me because I loved you. But it wasn't it wasn't the guy, the sound that I was starting to fall in love with from the previous album. So going back to another and we'll get back to that in a minute. But going back to what you had mentioned before. So the plan was never, you know, you at some point are going to go solo. Bourgeois tag becomes a thing. You guys having some success. Uh, you view this maybe as a launch pad for a potential solo career. Was that ever in your mind? Not really. No, not not really. I never really thought of myself as a singer. I mean, it really came down to the amount of songs I was writing and the kind of songs I was writing. And, mm. and the fact that we were kind of in this place with this producer that seemed kind of desperate to be hmm. it's funny that you should say that about dare to fall in love because that's exactly what i felt like with what we were doing hmm. um 
and see, it just goes to show you that it's there's pressure at that time. Yeah, you know, pressure on uh, on everyone to try to bank radio hits, sure. and um, uh, I just didn't think that's you know, it, it, there's a long story there, but it's okay. It's, I just felt like he was th- this producer was kind of taking the soul out of our band and yeah. putting it all into a synclavier, you know. And so, did you have to know, work with him? Let's just, it wouldn't have been enough for me to say no. I mean, everybody was kind of on, was kind of, was really up for it. And the record company was up for it. Management was up for it. And so my, my dislike of it was not enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, and well, and he was really hot too at the time. I mean, he was very hot at the time and it was a very calculated thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I just felt like, and especially in the space I was in, um, I felt exactly the opposite. Yeah. Um, okay. And so I didn't feel like a very good bandmate. Yeah. Were you, uh, when you left to do your solo thing, I don't even know, was there animosity with Larry Tag or any of the other guys? Or yeah, was it okay? yeah. I mean, there, there was because they, they didn't really like it. I mean, yeah. and without me, there really wasn't a band. Yeah, they just kind of felt like they had their legs cut out from under them. And yeah. then I immediately got a record deal and went on to make a record. And that I'm sure that didn't yeah. please them. And then right after that, right after that, uh, we all went in and made Todd Rundgren's Nearly Human record yeah. with him. You did. Uh, all together. Was it weird? Kind of an uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it was oh, weird. Man. Uh, thank God there were a lot of people there. Yeah, okay. There were a lot of musicians on that record and a lot of... A lot of people in the room at the same time uh, that made it a little less okay. uncomfortable, but it was uncomfortable. I yeah. Bet. And they went on to, they went on to basically be his band for a couple yeah. of years. I was um, going to, I was going to ask you about that later. You didn't do that. And I assume it's because you were going to go do your solo thing. No, because yeah. I was okay. making my solo record. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, I would have probably, but, okay. but, uh, um, but I didn't. Okay. So I got a million more things, but uh, let's talk about Carson for a minute. I'm, I'm really curious about, how that happened, how you felt. Uh, don't think, I mean, I hope this isn't too indelicate of a question. Were you like on drugs during the performance? Were you wasted or anything like no, that? No, it was so, I was, I was, I was sober then. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, I'd gotten sober during the making of that record. Oh, I thought it was after. Okay. Got it. No, got it was it. during the making, uh, right, right. You know, kind of towards the end of the making of that record, but it was while I was working with Todd and, and, um, so I, you know, no, I was sober and, okay. uh, that was a, that was a funny, I mean, you know, it's, I, I think what's really funny about stuff like that is that when you're on some kind of arc like that, you just think that's just what's happening sure. and it's not, it doesn't really become the, you know, a, a big deal until you realize you're not, you're not doing it again. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that was it. Okay, here's a fine musical group. They were going to be, uh, they will be in Los Angeles at the Wilton Theater on December the 8th and in Sacramento at the Crest Theater on December the 11th. This is their new album called Yoko, Yo, Yo-Yo. Would you welcome, please, Bourgeois Tag. Gentlemen.
story about that is that we did that show and of course it's on a, it, it's filmed about 5 30 in the afternoon or something like that and so we did that and then we had a gig that night at the coach house in san luis obispo mm-hmm. no no in uh san juan Canis- capistrano okay um so we had to drive over there and so we played a gig that night and there were you know it's about a 1200 seat place and there were maybe been a maybe 100 people there what? and it's a so what um you know, we just played on the Tonight Show, you know, a couple hours earlier, and then it yeah. came on. We had a TV <laughs> in the place, and it was on while we were playing, and we stopped, and we had everybody turn around and watch the show. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's always something humbling right after. That's why, you know, there's always something to humble you. Sure. At least in my life, it's always been there. Yeah, that's crazy. Did you interface with Johnny at all? Yeah, well, yes. He came in and said hello. Oh. Um, he apparently liked the song. We were going to do two, and we had two ready. And they, you know, it's sort of like one of those things where they can't exactly tell because yeah. of the interview length. So we were going to come back and play "Cry Like a Baby" at the end of the. Oh no way! Uh, the, and we had we had we had checked it and everything, um, yeah. and they just ran out of time. Huh. The other funny thing about that was that. He introduced us, and we went. The song is a cold open, uh-huh. where I go. I kind of do with my back of my hand. Go three, four, the time. You know, and yeah. Lyle starts playing. It's a cold thing. Yeah. So I did that, and Lyle steps forward, and the and the plug came right out of his acoustic guitar. <laughs> um, and I just thought. I mean, I didn't know until that, until about 15 seconds later that they could stop. Uh, Up until that moment, I thought you were on, you know, this was live and this was, this was it. You're, you're going to be on bloopers now. And, (laughs) um, you know, that was it. There it was. Right. (laughs) Um, because when he, that thing fell out of his, there, there was no sound except me. Oh, no way. And so, but they stopped and, and we got to do it again. Oh, really? Right? I just rewatched yeah. that clip, uh, getting ready to talk to you. I would have never guessed. And that's, rarely the second, did that. that's the second time. Yeah. Wow. Because the first time Lyle stepped forward and his plug came right out of his guitar. Huh? I got to ask you the two questions that I've been wanting to ask you for like 25, 30 years. Number one, are you still a Christian or at least a Christian to the degree that you were then? And have you ever had, did you then, or do you now have any regrets about sort of sacrificing a pop career to go down the Christian route musically? Well, the first question is, I, is it's complicated. Yeah, it sure is. I'm there with you on that. I don't, um, I don't ascribe or subscribe to the current definition, certainly of an evangelical Christian. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't belong to that club. Yeah. Um, that, and I mean, I didn't when I was in Nashville, I was, mm-hmm. I, 
I was part of a very small minority of left-wing kind of, you know, left-leaning mm-hmm. um, Christians. And it was kind of a, mm-hmm. a very small club that we were, um, and people knew, and it, they, you know, they, it was all good-natured fun. And, but, uh, I mean, I remember going on, uh, I went on the, what what do you call it, the, the uh, what's his name? The 700 Club? The club. Uh, yeah. The 700 Club. Yeah. And um, they were having... Um, you know, I was promoting a single or something, and I, you know, I didn't want to go there because I, I, you know, totally, you know, disagree with everything about it. But you know, just another one of those things you just go bite your yeah. tongue and go. Yeah. And I was in the green room, and they were doing this thing. They were interviewing everybody and asking them. They had this meter, and they were going, "How? Where do you fit on the political <laughs> spectrum?" And they had. Like the left was like, they had a picture of Stalin and on the right they had a picture of Ronald Reagan or something. And, you know, it was all good fun and everything. And I was just sitting there sweating bullets in the the green room just because, you know, I was to the left of Stalin, you know, uh, on there, you know. And and it was was just weird, but they never asked me. So maybe they knew. Okay. Um, all they wanted on that show was juicy details about your drug days, you know, Did like yeah. how bad was it, you know, and how, oh, that's a, tell us more, yeah. you know, you know, and as far as having any regrets, no, I, I enjoyed myself tremendously being in Nashville and I, I grew a lot as a musician and I still go to Nashville all the time and made a lot, a lot of my best friends there, musicians. And, um, and, uh, I'd live there today if my wife <laughs> didn't dislike it so much i mean yeah. so i mean okay i go back a couple times a year i do week-long sessions there um okay the christian thing is a whole nother ball of wax it's a whole i i have a lot of feelings about all of that and, and it could probably take up an hour of its own but the the musician community in nashville is um, there's no place like it. Yeah. And I believe it, especially now it's becoming like the new LA, you know, I mean, it's so it is, Yeah, it, it is the new, it's the, it's the center of the music universe. Well, let me, um, I don't know, maybe if you don't want to talk about it, we don't have to, but I do find, I do have a couple more questions about the Christian artistry, Christian artist career, because is this, um, is this podcast, um, Lean, lean towards Christian no, stuff or not? No, uh-uh. no, no. Okay, it, we're, okay. it's just music. It's just stories, and I. Okay. The reason, the reason I say that, two reasons. Number one, because I've loved and had a fascination with you for over thirty years now, and always wondered these things. And number two, I, I mean, I try to get as introspective as possible with a lot of the people that I talk to because, you know, we we just assume we just see the rock star you know, facade. We don't know what's really going on under the hood, especially spiritually. And the reason I say all that is because someone like you who had had a rising pop career and then decide, I'm going to go all, maybe you didn't decide this. Maybe a label decided this for you. I don't know. But if you decided, I'm going to put all my chips into the Christian market. I don't know enough to know if that's a limiting, if that limits you, your commercial potential you know what? Uh, I can tell you one thing is that I still, to this day, think I made the best record I've ever made. Um, Come yeah. Join the Living World, I think, is my best record. 
And um, it was the most freeing record musically because the emphasis in that market is on mm. lyrics. The music, you know, there's a freedom there musically that is not available as much in the pop world. I was able to do almost anything I wanted musically. And I think I made the best record yeah. I've ever made. Um, and it still, to me, stands up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, to, and, and so, you know, from that point of view, I, okay. I wouldn't Good. take any of it back. I do feel a, a bit of a, I feel a bit of a put on in a way that I was there doing that just because I didn't really buy into a lot of the whole evangelical thing and, and the, the agenda that they were, that they were selling. And I was, I'm a much more one world or, you know, kind of a all roads yeah. lead there. <laughs> um, and I yeah. always was, I, I'm not some conservative. I didn't turn conservative. Yeah. When I became a Christian, you know, I, in fact, I turned more liberal. It was, it's a weird thing. And I had to kind of stifle that, you know, I was a bit hypocritical in the fact that I had to sort of stifle that to do that okay. whole thing. That's what I've always wondered. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and I, you know, when I left it, I left it. Okay. Let's talk about the fun stuff. Um, how did Todd Rundgren come into your life? Because my understanding is that you guys were fans of his and did he hear that first album and think, you know, there's something here that I can work with? Or did you plead for him? What was it? Yes. Part, part of it was geography and the fact that uh, he, at that moment, was living in the Bay Area, living in Sausalito. Mm -hmm. And we were living in Sacramento. And our management was in San Francisco, Bill Graham management. Mm -hmm. And so there was a good fit there. And when we there was enough success on the first record that when we came around to making the second record we could afford you know a certain level of producer and we were given sort of a list of names of people that were possible mm -hmm. and his name was on that list and it was like well stop right there right you know we were all big todd rungren fans and we all it all comes out in your music and um you know it's kind of like if we can do that there's no need to go any further. Yeah. He always liked our musicianship. I mean, mm. from day one, mm. I mean, as you could see by him taking us on as his band, right. I mean, and he's a very, you know, obviously a critical guy and, um, doesn't suffer fools. And mm -hmm. he had a great deal of respect for us musically. He, what he didn't have was a, he didn't really care for our lyrics that much. Yeah. I heard that. And I heard that's what he spent most of the time kind of, harping on and trying to make us better and yeah. um, which I took you know it's one of those things that I kind of took from him and never let go of like in the as he taught you a lesson about lyrics that you yes. take with you Interesting. yes that I've I've that stayed with me my whole life okay. uh, that you've got like you know 45 minutes on a psychiatrist's couch and you get to do it in public and you you want a few people that can lay your heart out in public and you should take advantage of that and everything you write should come from your heart. Not, yeah. we were very heady and especially Larry, but we were both kind of more from the David Byrne, uh, talking mm. heads. Interesting. Um, I never would have thought that. Okay, cool. Observational. Well, if you look at what Larry writes, up like electric train. Monday.
we had a lot of talking heads in us. Huh. Along with a lot of other things. But, sure. But that first record was very much um, uh, influenced by the talking heads, by Remain wow. in Light. Okay. Is it true that Pencil and Paper is written about um, you being frustrated by like an argument with him or something like that? No, it's, it's uh, Cry Like a Baby. Or I'm sorry, yes, cry. that's what I meant to say. Cry Like a Baby. Look at me. Yes, it, it, it absolutely was um, just one of those sessions where we went over to his house and he just kind of took our took, took our one by one and go through the lyrics and just kind of took us to task. And, yeah. You know, it's like and he's not a soft peddler, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he's a mm-hmm. he's blunt and sarcastic and, you know, speaks his mind. And so I went home and wrote what the hell do you want from me? You know, um, I used to be a, a local hero and now do you, I'm nothing more than zero. And, you know, and, and all that stuff, I mean, was the day that night. I mean, I just wrote that and I brought it back to him and it was like, it's like, now you're getting it. <laughs> he had to beat you really, up to beat really you back up. Yeah, beat you he, down to beat you back yeah, up. Yeah, he said, I don't mind if you're writing shit about me. That, uh-huh. At least you're, you know, you're being honest. And sure, you know, I mean, it sounds like you took a lot of good things from the experience around. I think it may have been around the same time that he's working with XTC on Skylarking. Oh, it was right after. We were right after that. Was it? We were okay. the, 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 the record after that. Okay. Yes. That's what I thought. And and we heard all about it. I okay. Mean, we knew all about that. We got to hear his side of the story. I mean, from, from the horse's mouth. Right. And um, so, you know, he's never been... He's always been a difficult person to work with, but that you learn a lot from and that if you can hang in there and we've been fortunate in that, um, you know, I have a good relationship with him to this day. And he he did a nice thing for my record in, a couple of years ago and um, he sang on it and, and did more more on it than I thought he would. And really? um, he's, uh, I've seen him several times. And uh, in fact, I was going to bring him to. I'm still going to bring him to Facebook for something we're, we're working on together. So very cool. I've heard now I should say, I keep saying I've heard one of my listeners is a guy named Brad page. Who's like a Todd Rundgren junkie. And he was, I told him I was going to talk to you and he supplied me with all this information. Some of it I knew some was (laughs) really nerdy, but one of the things he mentioned was some of the really um, unique or kind of obscure tactics that Todd, uh, took on to get unique sounds, something specifically about drumming, I guess, and taking away cymbals and replacing them with something else. What are some of the weird things yeah. that he did to kind of break you guys out of your shell? On the song Waiting for the Worm to Turn, I remember that he he, he did exactly that. He took Urbano's cymbals away and he made a kit up of all these jangly things that he would have to hit 
instead. Uh, um, and that's what is on there. Okay. This doesn't sound that unusual now, but he had above his head in his control room, you know, he had 24 track board and 24 track machine. And he had 24 separate EQs mm. for each channel, like a, a, a parametric EQs. Um, I'd never seen any anybody do that. I mean, huh. um, he was very much into dialing in each sound as he was going, rather than waiting to the end. Uh huh. Huh. Are you happy? Did the did the album when you f- heard the final thing? Were you like, yes, this is exactly what I no. wanted? No. 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 I, I thought I don't mind at all. Was. Okay. I don't mind it always good. I thought Larry saw I thought Waiting for the Worm was really good. Love that song. that's another Larry song. I thought Larry songs really kind of came out better overall. And, um, I, you know, I just think I didn't write that many great songs. Uh, and I, I didn't really particularly like the way coma came out. Um, uh, I thought there was a better way to do that, but I thought it was great that we worked with him. I thought it was, I thought I I don't mind it all was really the centerpiece of it all. And that was, that was really what dominated everybody's sure. thing. That's why we got to go where we went and did what we did. And so that was what we were playing all the time. And um, right. so from that point of view, it was great. Yeah. Was Worm the second single off that? Because I don't, I never heard another song on the radio from that album after that, that I remember. There really wasn't a second single that did that well. Um now, is, did uh, it we not made do a video well because, that. yeah, the, okay, the video, because I didn't even know there was a video until YouTube came around and I found it years later, you know? We made that in England, and it was for the English market. Okay. And um, that's why, and, it, and I don't think it did very well there either. Uh, it didn't do as well as it could have or should have or whatever. Oh. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just like life is just a blur and you don't, I'm trying to try to reconstruct, you know, we, we were on tour with Robert Palmer and, um, Hart and we, you know, it was great. And, um, you know, people liked us and we went on a tonight show and we went on top of the pops and we went on, you know, we did a whole tour of Europe and all that stuff. And, you know, so it was, yeah. that was great fun. Um, so when one thing seemed good to me, 
Good. Yeah. Well, good. And one thing, though, that's I've come to realize from talking to a couple hundred of you guys is that so often the fate or the success of a song is due to the record labels, you know, muscle and pro- promotional muscle. If they want it to become a hit, they'll will it that way, or at least they'll try. Yeah, they can will it into the top 20. I mean, they can make it. You, yeah. can, you can buy your way into the top 20. You can't really buy your way too much farther than that. Mm. As, after the tw- top 20, then, then it has to perform. It has, yeah. to, um, it has to work on the radio and people have to call in and they have sure. to like it and they have to, you know, but you can buy your way into the top 20. I mean, there's, there was never any doubt. Yeah. So was this a matter then of the label? Like, well, there's, we only hear one hit off this album, so we're not going to go big on anything else. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, part of it is the uniqueness of that song Yeah, made a follow-up a it tough did. thing it because mm-hmm. there wasn't another one like it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, these are the guys that did that song. Now, where do they go from here? Yeah. Um, what song do you put out to make it, you know, to make people make the connection? Right. Um, Agreed. And so I think from that point of view, that was, that probably more than anything was, yeah. you know, I did, there wasn't a second one of them. Yeah, I could see that. And Todd was not even sure he wanted to put it on the record, which is really funny because of that very thing. Mm. And, you know, he, the the same thing happened to him with XTC with dear God. He didn't want to put that on there either. Um, And that was the biggest song from that record. Um, uh, You know, just like I didn't want to put dare to fall in love on my record. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) wow. I never thought of it that way. You're right. Yeah. 1995 come join the living world. You mentioned earlier that that was, one of your proudest moments. You felt like that's your strongest album, but yet it was your last album for nearly 20 years. Why? What did you go on to do? Well, it's what it didn't do. <laughs> I mean, it didn't really... It's funny because even in that market, there were four number one songs on that record in that market, but the, it didn't sell like that. Part of that, you'd have to understand that market, but uh, I really wasn't one of them. I wasn't brought up in that bubble and it's kind of a, a closed bubble. I mean, yeah. it's a club, like a lot of clubs. There's a lot of clubs out there <laughs> yeah. in the world. And that's one of them. But it didn't really uh, seem like it was paying off. And meanwhile, I was producing uh, a lot and that was going really well. And I was really enjoying that. And there wasn't a whole lot of pressure from the record company that I was with to make another record because it was really expensive for them. Uh, and it wasn't, it, you know, it didn't really pay off for them. And, uh, and, and I was kind of a pain in the ass anyway, because uh, <laughs> of who I was and my attitude towards a lot of what they did. <sighs> and then, um, I hooked up with a guy named Michael W. Smith. Yeah. He was a very popular, probably maybe you know, the number two guy in that world.
and I wrote songs with him and yeah. uh, uh, ended up being a music director for a year for him. Shortly after that, I was offered the opportunity to become the vice president of A&R at Word Records, wow. which was a funny thing because I would have never in my life, you couldn't have paid me enough money to believe that that's what I would have ended up doing. Right. The guy that called me, you know, first he asked me if I was sitting down. And then he asked me, what would I think of becoming the vice president of A&R at Word Records? And I said, Lauren, I don't even like what you guys do. Mm. Oh, man. You know, and he said, well, we don't either. So mm. that's why we're calling. Wow. <laughs> so and basically it was like, all right, asshole. Yeah. Um, you know, you throw rocks at the windows all the time from outside. Come on in. And yeah. Uh, See if you can make this thing better, you know, and, and it was, a, you know, it was kind of a challenge and it was a, a real job with the real health benefits and I right. had, you know, four kids and, and they let me produce. Oh, they did? Yeah, yeah. So it was really perfect because okay. I didn't really have to stop doing what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, which was, it, for a while, it was an absolutely perfect job. But you had to, like, walk the corporate line, though, didn't you? I mean, that can be... That's probably a real shock to the system for a musician. No, I kept getting in trouble. I mean, I never, never did. Yeah. Um, I was the definition of asking for forgiveness uh -huh. you know, rather, rather than permission. Yeah. I got, I got in trouble for, for doing things that people that, that, well, if I hadn't done them, they wouldn't have gotten done. Yeah. Um, and, and so I did them and they got done and then I got in trouble for it later, but it didn't matter. Yeah. So that lasted about four or five years. Wow. And I ended up quitting. You did? I quit before I got fired. Ah, there you go. Okay. I've been there. I know how that goes. So my question, though, to you is that as this is happening and you keep getting further and further away from the creative musician side, I mean, granted, you're, you're discovering people. But that's not true. Well, that's my question. Are you as equally creatively satisfied with the production side and the writing side and the discovery side as you were or would have been had you continued to pursue your own solo career? Uh, absolutely, because I... Good. Yes, because number one, I'm not one of those people that had a tremendous desire to be on stage. Huh. I mean, it's okay, but it's not doesn't drive me. It never yeah. did, yeah. being on stage. I really like being in the studio. Hmm. And, and, I, and I was in the studio more... Um, and just to give you one example of something that I did that nobody had ever done. Um, since I was the head of INR and a producer, I signed this. At the time, she was uh, 15 years old. Her name was Rachel Lampa. Still the best singer I've ever worked with. Hmm. And, uh, uh, it was a high-profile signing for that market. A lot of money involved. And she wasn't a writer. She was just a singer. And I really wasn't going to do that. I mean, my thing was signing singer-songwriters and that was really my MO. I didn't, I didn't really, something I didn't really like in that market was these singers that didn't write. And, mm. you know, you had to go through this whole process of getting publishers to send songs. And it was a big song, you know, wank yeah. and you get thousands of songs and it's, they're just recycling songs. Nobody used before. And, right. But she was too good of a singer to uh, pass up. So uh, I signed her and then I decided that what we were going to do was I, rented a farmhouse out in the country in Franklin, Tennessee. And I got seven of my favorite friends who were singer songwriters hmm. to come to that farmhouse. And I set up little workstations for everybody. And we went out there and wrote her record with just her in mind. Mm -hmm. 
songwriters were singers and so they all knew how to write for that and then we could bring her out and test mm -hmm. songs and see if they worked and if they were right so every one of them had to have a moment for her you know and yeah. so that was to me you know as creative a thing as i could do yeah it was extremely satisfying and creative and um hadn't been done good and uh, where'd she go where is she she still has a career she's oh, only like in her young 30s at this point. I mean, that's how young she was. Right. <laughs> so tell me then where Don't Look Back comes from and your current job with Facebook. These are two things that I am absolutely fascinated by because as I mentioned, yeah. I think Don't Look Back is like a masterpiece. I love it. That's I, funny. I had, what, funny? <laughs> what? It's so good. And I didn't even know, I didn't, I had lost complete tabs with you. And then about four years ago or so, I heard you on the Inside Music Cast podcast. Yeah. Talking yeah. about it. And I was like, Brent's still out there? And this music is great. And I immediately bought it that day. And I, I, I love it. How did it happen? Uh, I mean, I had really stopped doing music, at least for myself, um, entirely. And, and, at the same time, I started writing books. I wrote three books over the course of about seven years. Um, I really kind of thought that's what I might end up doing was being a writer. And um, of course, those never really went anywhere either. And then I had a chance meeting with a guy that I worked with a lot in Nashville. He was sort of a mentor of mine. He was starting a new company. He really kind of talked me into possibly having a, a role in it, it and I could stay out in the West coast. Huh. And this ended up being a very interesting time with this very wealthy young lady in Malibu, whose folks had started the company public storage. <laughs> and mm. so she was, she was the heir to public storage and she was a singer songwriter and he was working with her and he wanted me to work with her. Yeah. And so I ended up spending the better part of a year commuting to Malibu and working with this young lady. And that got me using all of my gear again, all of my yeah. digital, uh, using logic, using my stuff. And then I realized how behind I was and how, mm. what I didn't have and all this stuff. But it got me back in the studio. It got me back writing with her. It got me back programming music. I was writing again. And okay. then, but really what they were, were songs for me. I mean, I didn't realize it at first, but the guy who was kind of running his publishing company kept telling me, saying, you know, these are really good songs, but I have no where I, these sound like you. They don't really sound like something I could sell to somebody else. Huh. So that's really where that came from. 
Okay. You know, I was just going to do it completely on my computer all by myself. And then it ended up being a sort of a, this is your life in yeah. music <laughs> with everybody I know almost on it. It's almost more interesting to see who's not on it than who's on it. It seems to hitch itself to the EDM wave that's going on without being an outright techno in album or anything like that. It just, it has this, these washes of synthesizers, but in, in a very modern right. techno sound, it, uh, which really, so when you are talking so much about the gear and that it sounds like almost touching your gear again, re-inspired you to write music again. Yeah. Did, yeah. Were you getting, did you have gear that would allow you to make basically almost EDM music? Or I know your son, Adrian, I think is a musician. It's kind of funny because when I hear it now, it's pretty naive and elemental in that area because I've become so much more embedded in my equipment and, and my software and everything else that that stuff is really kind of beginner stuff, which is papered over to some extent by the musicians that played on it, which yeah. is good. But I am 200% better at what I'm doing now than I was then. I was just sort of getting into it. It was like, oh my gosh, I can do that. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. you know, it's new to me. Right. It's not all that great, but I mean, the songs are good, I think. I think it is. But anyway, I wanted to ask you specifically because one of the songs I really enjoy on there is You and I. And you sing it with a girl, and because I have, I bought it off iTunes, I don't even know who that girl is, but it's great. Hey, baby, look what's happening. We're the toast of the town, believe it. We made it. We're survivors. Into the wind we go now, you and I. We're gonna fly to the top of the sky. Who is she? What's the story? She is the other 15-year-old that I signed when I was at <laughs> Word Records. At the same time that I signed Rachel Lampa, her name is Paige Lewis. And (laughs) Paige Lewis has been in our life ever since because she is the other half of my son's duo, See How They Run. Mm. Yeah, it's such a great record. If I could could talk a few people into buying it, I've done my job because I love it. In fact, Deep Blue Sea is not just, that's one of my favorite songs ever. On the 4th of July, you sit by to me. You declared your state of independence I was hoping you'd stay for a drink or two We could talk about our best intentions But then a man in the moon and a cold day in hell Has just as good a chance as me
interesting because if you don't have the if you don't have the CD, you don't know who's on it. I or maybe you do, but no, I have no idea. But it's just completely full of everybody I've ever worked with. Is Larry Tag on there somewhere? Uh, yeah, yeah. The song "Psycho" is is Bourgeois Tag. Is it really? I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just Bourgeois Tag, and it's and it's mixed by David Holman, who mixed our first record. We have exceptional genes, and yet we fight like kids, even though we don't know what it means. We're on psycho. Down the train, here we go. Completely bourgeois tag. I love that. How are you friends with Julian Lennon? It's, it's the high road. That's me and Julian Lennon. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I a know. duet. Basically, he sings the second verse, and and he sings the. I wondered. All the it's a total duet. Whoever said it's darkest for the dawn? Well. Uh, I've known him since the beginning of Bourgeois Tag when we opened for him. He asked for us, and he we were like one of his favorite bands. Uh-huh. And so we, really? we did a, several dates with him, and uh, I've kind of known him ever since. And then poor me, uh, you know, poor me is Todd. Todd Rundgren's all over that song. Is he really? <laughs> yeah, he's singing, singing all those backgrounds. So wound up on the wrong side of the tracks, walk smack dab into trouble. I've always had the knack, and fool that I am, I've forgotten how to get back, back to my.
I mean, I thought I was recognizing some of these voices, but I didn't wasn't for sure. I didn't know, you know. That is great. That's funny. I mean, there's so many people on this record. It's like it turned out to be like, you know, just about everybody I've ever worked with. That's great. I do have one more follow-up question regarding that period where you were writing books. And this is something I'm really curious about. Are you um you know, are you is your wife working? Are you um, able to pay your bills because you of, of a payout from when you were the VP? How are you paying the bills during this period? Well, it's all those things. Yes, my wife was working. Yes, I had royalties from the past. I mean, they weren't, you know, they they were sort of working man's royalties, but they uh-huh. were. And yes, I had a payout from Word Records. Okay. And I was working at a church. So between all those things, there was a there was a there was enough to living to scratch out there. Yeah. When that's happening, do you ever have days where you're just like, I just, I was on The Tonight Show. I just performed a few years ago with thousands, in front of thousands of people, yeah, and now yeah, I'm scratching yeah. away in Sacramento. Yes, there were definitely, and, and I wouldn't have left Nashville if I wasn't married yeah. and didn't want to lose my marriage, basically. Right. Um, and the fact that the music industry was really in the toilet. Um, yeah. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I went into deep denial. That's why, you know, I would tell everybody I was really through. Um, but really there were days when I was sitting in a church office going, what in the hell am I doing here? You know, but I was writing books and I mean, I, I was being, using my brain creatively and, um, and occasionally I would do something, you know, do some producing or something locally. Your story is is similar to a lot of people's story. I mean, the change in the music business decimated the careers of thousands of people, not just you. Oh, yeah. So many other people are having to pivot and find other ways, and whether it's performing in their church or whatever, I mean, that's... Oh, I I know. I mean, especially people in the music business. Yeah. And what happened, what I found happened, just really quickly, was when I got back to Sacramento from Nashville, my thought was, and I told this to my wife, well, listen, I'll do that, but I'm going to be spending half my time in Nashville. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be going back and doing some producing and all that kind of stuff. And that never happened. What happened was the whole hierarchy of work there went down about three pegs. So the guys at the top of the food chain started doing things they thought they would never do. And it filtered down and down and down. And so you know, I knew guys that before were engineering, you know, major records that were taking church records, yeah. you know, yeah. taking somebody's brother's record, you know, that they would, and it all ended up like that. And there was no, you know, because it just wasn't that much work for anybody. Right. So I was kind of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. I sometimes think the producers have it worse than anybody. I've talked to a few on here, big ones like Rupert Hine and Mark Opitz yeah. and these legendary producers. But, you know, the acts that they produced can go out and tour and play their songs if they have to. The producers whose genius helped make these things, there's not the budgets to sustain the careers that they once had. And they don't have, no. they can't go out and play, you know, those hits that people know. It's different. Trevor Horn, these guys are kind of screwed. It's so sad. And not only that, but record companies, the way they're set up now, they expect producers to be their A&R guys. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, producers have now taken on that role, which is, you know, it's kind of a dual thing. And, and in some ways, that's kind of cool, but but it's 
um, you know, you're supposed to find the people too. <laughs> yeah. So how does Facebook fall into this? And then, uh. yeah. I, and t- forgive me if this is too, I don't, I hope this doesn't sound rude or anything, but does Facebook look at it like we have the front man for bourgeois tag writing music for us? Or is it, yeah, this guy Brent, who was a, who was the lead singer of an eighties band. He, he does our music now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I hope, I hope neither. that's not too crass. Okay. No, neither. This thing came out of absolutely nowhere. And uh-huh. I was not, you know, um, and what happened was I have a husband and wife who I've been friends with for th- about 30 years. He was in a band when I was in Bushwatch Ag. He was in a, a local band at the same time. And they were fans of ours. His wife and him were both fans of ours. They used to come all the time. And so this is where the long tail of your life comes in because fast forward several years and this guy has a software company in the Bay area that ends up doing, um, guitar hero. Oh, the, the, you know, you know what that is, right? Yes, I sure do. Guitar hero is is, is, right. It's huge thing. And they were responsible for all the music for guitar hero. Um, they remained fans of ours, and they knew Lyle Workman, our guitar mm-hmm. player, really well. Mm-hmm. They knew Larry. His sound design company started to do work for Facebook, and they did so much work for them that Facebook ended up absorbing his company mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. Facebook and made him the head of sound design department at Facebook. Wow. Okay, this is, and his wife became sort of the administrator of that department. So here they are as the head of sound design in Facebook. And this guy saw that what was happening at Facebook was all based on video. You know, mm-hmm. content was all moving towards video. And what were they going to need to, to behind this, all this video mm-hmm. was music. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically had free reign to do what he wanted. This is a really cool thing about Facebook is they give their heads of departments, basically go out and, you know, do what your heart tells you to do, mm. you know, if you're going to fall on your face, make it a brilliant fall on your face, yeah, you know, yeah. fail large. It's all that kind of stuff. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is not a muso. He's not a music guy. He's a coder. Right. He's a, he's an engineer at heart. He doesn't really, he's not a music geek at all, but he, he just gave my, the guy I know the freedom to go do this. And so within a year or less, he started this thing called Facebook music initiative and I was one of the first people that they called. It was like the most incredible get out of jail card I've ever had. That's like, amazing. Here's, I had all this gear, all this new software, all these sounds, every sound I could ever want. And, and the freedom to write whatever I want, yeah. anything yeah. all over the world. I mean, that's my thing is writing anything. Like I wake up yeah. in the morning and I want, I want to write something African and then wake up tomorrow and I write something, you know, whatever funk yeah. piece and old, yeah funk tune and then I write this and then I write that and then anything, anything. Yeah. And so it, that's, that's, and they, and you know, it's like, well, what is this going to be used for? I don't know. Um, <laughs> we'll figure that out. You know, basically that's really what it was. I don't know yeah. if we, build, if we build it, they'll come. If yeah. we, if we make enough music, they're going to start using it for stuff, you know, in the, in videos and in, in, in all kinds of stuff. Like we don't even know yet, but yeah. I can see the future and I can see that they're going to be using it on Instagram for, you know, for, for their cameras on, on 
you know, on, on stories, they have Instagram stories, they have Facebook yeah. stories, but all that stuff wasn't there yet. Um, none of this, the Instagram camera wasn't even there yet. None of this, but he just kind of saw the future that it was all going to and AR VR. And, mm-hmm. um, so nine months later, they hired me full time as a full time employee, mm-hmm. um, to, to do this and to bring more people into it, to bring, because, um, I had kind of shown that this could, could morph into something much bigger. Right. Um, and so I started hiring all kinds of people that I knew. And then we started doing songs we did pop songs and we did, and it, it turned out that we were basically, we didn't really realize what we were doing, but we were, we were trying to reinvent the music world. Uh-huh. You know, like everything that's in music in the world, yeah. we wanted a piece of it. We wanted some, we wanted music from all over the world and that's what we were doing. And that's what we've been doing for the last three years is, is gathering music from all over the world, original music that of all kinds. I mean, there is no music really that we haven't, yeah. you know, tried to acquire to get, and, and I'm still writing for them. And, but, but I spend much of my time now getting other people to do it and managing I have about 25 writers myself. Um, and then I have a counterpart there that has 25 writers or so themselves. And, um, and literally it's, it's, we, uh, you know, India is the biggest Facebook user of all, really? um, more than the United States. Africa is going to be probably, um, top of them all soon. And so we have to have a lot of music that feeds people from all over the world. Um, so we have this thing called the sound collection. It's facebook.com slash sound. Well, I looked up your music on Facebook specifically, and it's, like you are saying, it's every genre there is. There's a country song, there's African, there's whatever you want. Now, you wrote and recorded and performed all the, produced all that music, or you field sourced it somehow? Everything but the country stuff. Uh, once a year, I go to Nashville in the summer, and we do okay. a country session. But other than that, you know, 95% of that music that's, has my name on it is all coming out of my computer once in a while i'll get a friend to play guitar or i have um yeah. i have one or two vocal songs that are sung by somebody else but by and large everything that's on there there's some jazz on there too there's a few songs that are that yeah. i also yeah. did in nashville with with a couple of jazz players but the funny thing is a lot of the jazz on there it's done out of my computer, and I'm even doing more of it right now, like trying to sound like 60s jazz out of my computer. thing it's just it's incredible it's i couldn't i can't tell you how it's changed my life completely i'm probably one of the older people that work there you know uh because it's not you know and uh yeah. it's it's just yeah. amazing that i'm there i go down there about five days a, a month and um i work out of my home the rest of the time i have this great pipeline with berkeley school of music that i'm getting a lot of young talent that has graduated from berkeley the best of the best of the best. And most of them are from around the world. So you are basically recording all this music to contribute to a library. Uh, we don't call it that. Music of all kinds. 
Well, okay, yeah. A layman like me might call it a library. It's a see a li- you know. library denotes something that we that I I hate library music. I mean, I hate the idea of library music. Okay, okay. I mean, there's a lot of connotations to that. Um, and what we're doing is definitely not a library. We're because we're what we're doing is we're making music that the songwriters want to make first. They're writing whatever they want. Uh-huh. They're writing whatever their heart leads them to write. And then people are coming there and discovering it and using it for whatever they want. Right. Um, it, instead of like a library, is sort of like you write certain kind of music because that's what people are going to need. Or they're asking you to write, you know, we need this and we need that. And, yeah. we, need, and we need you to write to this or to that. Or um, and this is just kind of the opposite is that we're asking people to create music from their heart whatever they want got it and we'll take it and hopefully someone out there is creating some piece of media some content yes. that re- needs some music in it and they're going to yes. come to you and say i need something that sounds like 60s jazz they just come to the, say, to, well they just go it's really go to the sound collection and they can okay. use it for free and they can download it for free um it's there yeah Okay. And it's cheaper to pay you and a stable of people to create whatever you want than it is to license an existing song um, and play that instead. Is that the logic here? Well, when we started, they did not have a deal with the music industry. And as we've gone along, they have made one, but it's like a billion dollar deal. And it's full of holes and it's full of um, things they can't do. They can only use music for 90 seconds. They can't use it here. They can't do it for this. They have to have permission to do this. It's not for every territory. You know, there's, it's just yeah. full of caveats and what ifs. And our music is completely license free. You can use it however you want for as mm-hmm. long as you want. And it's been a really great thing for the artists that are in it because we give them attribution. Yeah. You've always heard the, t- the, the term, it's, good, it's great exposure. Right. And that usually means we're not paying you. You know, yeah. that usually means, yeah, do this for us. We're not paying you, but it's great exposure. Yeah. Um, but this, we pay well, Good. and it's on a platform that 2.2 billion people a month use. Incredible. Um, and all of our artists, including me, we get these uh, messenger messages from all over the world of people that have used our songs and videos. I mean, all over the world, places huh. that you just kind of go, Really? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, from Sri Lanka and from Burkina Faso and from Peru and from Indonesia and wow. South Korea and Poland and, you know, and, and places and these videos, like these little video creator things that you wouldn't think are anything. They get a hundred million views. They get 45 million views. They get, it's, in, it's crazy numbers. We're all kind of addicted. I'm not. I'm not that excited about it. You know? Well, it's, I was just going to say it's been really interesting to watch you come to life while you've been talking about it. Yeah, far more than talking about your own career. This Facebook stuff really gets you excited. That's impressive. It's the bomb. It's it's a great yeah. great thing. And it, Good. It changed. It really changed my life. Good. I'm so glad you deserve it, Brent. You deserve it. I'm really happy. Um, okay. Rapid fire. I got a couple rapid fire questions for you. Number one, why do you hate the voice so much? I've never seen that show. You lash out on them on Twitter all the time. I guess someone you liked didn't win, but then I also, did you used to work for them or something like that? Again, I've never seen this show. I have no idea. I liked the voice. I watched the voice for years. I thought it was the, I thought it was a, you know, a really nice alternative to all those other shows. And I, I liked the personalities and I, I, I've enjoyed it. I just hated it this year because uh, they really 
screwed the pooch um, uh, on on what they did this year, and and they did it to 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 an extent that I'm I'm done with it. But but uh, I I I always liked it. It's almost like it broke my heart. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Okay. Just curious. That's what I sense from your tweets. Secondly, this is a two-part question. Rapid fire. Number one, how do you feel about the debut Bourgeois Tag album now? Number two, whenever you watch the video for Mutual Surrender, do you throw up in your mouth a little bit? At the hair and the style and the fashion and everything else. The hole in the ozone, you know, that we created. That music and a lot of the music from that era, not just us, is hard to listen to because of the... Uh, clunkiness of the machines. They were just, all the software was just being invented and just being, of course, we snatched it and wanted to use it all and everybody wanted to use all that stuff. So it's very square sounding like, uh, you know, the, the human element. And and that's a sad thing because we were a great live band. That was what we were all about. We were great player playing live band. And, that record and a lot of records out of that era kind of sucked the life out of playing because everything had to be sort of lined up. Um, And it was a clunky way of lining stuff up back then. Nowadays you can line stuff up much more elegantly and fluidly and uh, leave humanity in it. And, you know, that's, in fact, that's what I do every day. I mean, I'm I'm doing, that's what I, with all this jazz stuff that I'm doing, I'm, 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 I'm trying to find exactly the right balance between, you know, not being too sloppy and keeping the human in it and all that stuff. And you could do that now, but back then it was either was sort of like either do this or don't. And, um, and you know, I was around those people that used to even Toto, you know, those guys, I mean, a great drummer like Uh Beccaro, he would sit there and take his kick drum, put it on a table and hit the beater with his, with his hand because he wanted to get it just right. You know, I mean, and and that's that's a reflection of that record. Um, yeah. And that's why it's hard to listen to. And as far as that video, it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> uh, um, the the next video, though, I don't mind at all. It's, I think it's still, still oh, it's kind great. of holds that up. Holds up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I read a quote. Um, I'm just going to read it real quick. That sums up it perfectly. I think that first album, it's from allmusic.com. It says, relies he- entirely on studio craft. So that's all that can be heard. And I think that's kind of true for that album. The the machinery overwhelms the the personal aspect, right. like you and, said. And, and that's a shame because we were a really good yeah. playing band. You know? Yeah. So, um, do you guys? This is I don't know. Do you ever get uh, invited to come play in these nostalgia '80s nostalgia shows? Well, yeah. we did a couple of years ago. We did, and we actually did a few. It was after our reunion, and we had, and it sort of, you know we were kind of in that mode for a uh-huh. moment. Uh-huh. Um, and so we did, um, but then Lyle couldn't really do it. And so, because he was so busy with his, and he was touring and he, and with uh, people like Sting and, yeah. um, and then he had his film stuff. And, um, and then, then there were, uh, and, and then Urbano couldn't do it a couple of times. And when, when that happened and they, they kept asking. I mean, they they haven't stopped asking. Huh. I mean, we still, Larry and I still get requests to do that, but I won't do it. Um, uh, I won't do it. Just me and Larry and two other guys. I hate yeah. that whole idea. Huh. It's either the whole band or nothing. And 
I don't really want to do it anyway. Hmm. I, I don't get a whole lot of uh, pleasure watching, you know, 60 year old guys that used to have, you know, with pot bellies and uh-huh. bald spots, you know, uh, the scallops, you know, yeah. trying to <laughs> recreate their, uh, you know, their glory days. And, yeah. and they got like one guy in the band that used to be in the band and the rest of them are like 23 year olds, you know, kids out of college. It just doesn't appeal to me uh, either way. I mean, I, okay. um, so. Okay. You know. Just curious. I didn't know if yeah. there was enough of a draw to the name, you know, two hits basically that, um, would merit being an inv- invited to be on yeah, the show. Yeah, no, like we that, get but... we get asked. I mean, we, we get asked. I mean, we're we're probably down the food chain a bit. Yeah. As far as we wouldn't headline those shows, but we, sure. you know, when we did a couple of them, there were a, there were a lot of people there, and there's a lot of people knew. I mean, everybody knows I don't mind at all. They yeah. They they know the song. So all you really need is one song um, to do those shows. Um, but I don't really want to do them. I, I have okay. no desire. Um, Especially says the guy who's happily employed these days, too, you know? Yes. And the, and the other thing is a side note. This is just a funny side note. Is that when any when all the other guys, um, you know, Larry brings his bass guitar and the same amp and bass guitar he's been playing ever since we played. He still <laughs> has the same rig. Mike Urbano has a drum set and he brings it. You know, Lyle, Lyle would have a hard, you know, Lyle has to bring a lot of guitar gear, but I have to reprogram an entire decade. You know, <laughs> I have to find a keyboard and reprogram all those sounds. Yeah. I mean, and you know, with two hands going simultaneously on all of that 80 sounding keyboard stuff. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's a major, <laughs> major operation. I believe to, it to do a set, you know, like 10 songs uh-huh. of all of that stuff. Cause I have to think long and hard before I would ever do that again. You know? Yeah. Fun. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm glad that's so, this is, I love how animated you get when you talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, okay. Last question. Tell me your favorite Todd Rundgren story. <laughs> well, you know, as a producer in the studio, he was, uh, a tough, yeah. sell because he would you know he, he'd sing your butt off and or something and try to um you know do a lead vocal and and you know you'd be out there and and you're looking into the control room and he's reading a magazine <laughs> um and 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 you hear nothing and you kind of go well you know well yeah yeah well what what, do you, what did you think and he kind of puts down the computer manual and you have to reach like it's a painful to reach over to the talk back. Right. What do I think about what? Uh-huh. It's like, what did you think of that take? Well, uh, it didn't bother me. <laughs> you know? oh, so you get stuff great. like that and, and you'd have to really kind of adjust your self-esteem. Sure. Um, or you'd say something like, you know, that sounded like an Ohio player's B-side. Um, you, know, you go, what? Is that you good? <laughs> That's good, right? <laughs> well, no, it, was, it wasn't good. I know. He wasn't going to give you anything right. to take home that's warm and fuzzy. There's so many things that I've taken from him that at the moment I didn't like. You know, it's like going to a boarding school you didn't like, and then you realize the rest of your life you were... You know that uh-huh. that you've been affected by it, right. and you've taken stuff from it, or something. Sure. Um, 
uh, and, you know, the whole, this whole course's musical songwriting is, was already in us and already in me. Um, but it just kind of came out more. And then we played with him a lot, you know, so. Sure. Okay. Um, I knew that he really liked our band because he used it as his own band. And there's no higher praise than, yeah. than that he, I mean, he produced a lot of different people, um, a lot of people. And he used our, our, our band became his band. That's right. For, for quite a while. And even when we were working with him, um, when we were actually in the process of making the record, that's when I did do dates with him, with mm. our band. And it was really fun because he'd let us make his set out for him. Like, really? so we were all Todd fans, right? We were all big Todd fans. Yeah. So we would just pick our favorite Todd song and he'd go, all right, you know, he didn't care. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we'd learn them and we'd get them down, you know, just right because we were such nerds, you know, we we're such uh-huh. Todd nerds. And they're, they're, I mean, that's the thing. People are such Todd nerds that like Todd. One of the people that's doing this thing with me right now in Facebook is a very well-known producer who was such a Todd nerd that I got him to and to mix the Todd song on my record for free because Todd was on it. And he was such a Todd nerd that he was a bourgeois tag nerd. And he could tell me everything that we played. He could tell the, be the, he could quote back the baseline on one of our songs better than I could, because that's just how Todd fans are. Let me ask you something. They, they're just, it, it wouldn't happen yeah. to be Phil Thornalley, would it? <laughs> no, but I know who that is. No, no, oh. it's John Field. Okay. It's I'm interviewing John. Phil on Sunday and I know he's a big uh, Todd guy too. No, he, well, he's he's a guy who's in that, and it's funny because all the Todd geeks are uh, really like his record, yeah, um, because it's kind of poppy, like it is. It's awesome. Todd and, I love it, Brent. Thank you for talking with me. I've um, I find your story so fascinating and compelling. I've wanted to know what is going on with you for thirty years. All these ups and downs and the, the Christian rock and the the production and the Facebook, I just find you so interesting. There's not a through line that is constant that makes sense. A lot of musicians don't follow the path that you have. And I just think, what's he doing? How does he feel about it? Is is it okay? Is he I know he was a drug addict and now he's a Christian. How's that going? Anyway, I just find you so compelling. And so thank you for talking with me. <laughs> You're welcome. It hasn't been boring. There you have it, Brent Bourgeois. What a journey. You know what I mean? He's been through so much and done so much. I really like these guys. I especially, if you have not heard Yo-Yo, that is a fantastic album. Again, produced by Todd Rundgren. This song right here is one of my favorite songs on that album. It's called The Best of All Possible Worlds. It was written by Larry Tagg. Thank you, Brent, for finally doing this with me. I've waited almost exactly four years for this to happen, folks. Now, next week, I'm waiting on... Uh, potentially interviewing somebody that has been in the works for about six months that might be timely. 
it doesn't look good. Uh, these people have offered to talk to me. Well, I'll just tell you. It's either Belle Biv DeVoe or Bobby Brown or both. I've been waiting for months to talk to them. And uh, their people keep kind of stringing me along. Well, they're going on tour in April, and I'm hoping to get to talk to one of them before that happens. If I do, that's probably what next week's episode will be. If not, we're going to finally put out the one that I've been talking about for a while, the front man of that sort of obscure British pub rock band of the 70s that became a new wave band of the 80s. Um, again, I, you'd have to be a real deep music head probably to know who these guys are, but he's great, and their music is a lot of fun, Okay. This week, we were produced by the great Paul Underwood of Glory Days Radio. Thank you, Paul. I love his work. He steps in once a month or so and does the best job. I'm so grateful for you, Paul. Thanks for everything that you do. And you guys know how to find us by now. You can like our page on Facebook, and you can send us a message, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We have a couple of more bonus episodes coming out this month. In fact, in a few days, you're going to get this month's Deep Dive, which is a good one. It's one of the greatest albums of all time. You don't believe me? Look at Rolling Stone's list of the 500 best albums ever. In fact, look at Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest albums ever. It's on there. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you later. Hey, 